Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So we're starting a new Advent series today. As uh, Wendy and Jeremy and I have been praying about it, we've just really sensed a lot of anticipation. This has been a fantastic year at Quest. So much good ministry. We just sense a lot of anticipation. There's been so many good things happening this year, and we believe that there's a whole lot more good coming, that God is preparing us for something in 2022. For Wendy, for the past couple of months as she's been praying, this idea has been popping into her mind of RSVP which has seemed like God has been saying to her, I'm inviting you to something, and would you like to RSVP? Meaning, do you really want to sign up for this? Because an RSVP says we're coming, we're committed, right? This actually led to our Advent series title, which is Responding to God's Invitations. Invitations are interesting, aren't they? There are some we really like to hear, like, will you marry me? Or would you consider this job promotion or other things? And there are other invitations in life that we may not want, like when the doctor says, I, I really need you to come in and talk to you about some results on the test. Whether we realize it or not, we're receiving invitations all the time. And what we say yes and no to forms where our lives are going. It affects how well we do spiritually, emotionally, and physically. In the midst of these invitations, big or small, from whatever source, good or bad, they come from, One big question for us on a consistent basis is, what is the invitation God is giving you right now? What is he giving to you and what is he giving to us as a community of faith? I like the word invitation because it's personal. It's specifically inviting you. And if you've ever been one who didn't get invited to certain events or parties, an invitation is a gift. It feels good to be included. It's an honor to be invited. And the point is, God wants you to feel included because he's always pursuing you. He's inviting you into a journey of spiritual growth and to experience his love all the time. I also like the word invitation because it shows how God gives us the freedom to say yes or no. He doesn't force us or manipulate us because healthy relationships don't do that. And it seems God is preparing our hearts for the next season, and this is... Preparation dovetails really well with Advent. Advent is the beginning of the new church year according to the Christian calendar, so I should probably say Happy New Year right now. But instead of fireworks and a ball dropping in Times Square, the Christian New Year begins with reflection. Why? Because Advent, these four Sundays before Christmas, mean coming. We take the time to remember the waiting, the longing the hoping, the anticipation of the coming Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. And we also, in these weeks before, look forward to the fact that he's coming again. Now, this is going to be a hard season for us, right? Because it's filled with so many activities between buying gifts and organizing events and decorating our homes, and Christmas can slip by before we even realize it. I was talking to someone this morning. They say, yeah, Christmas for me is like you just work and work and work, and you get there, and then all of a sudden you have the letdown, and it's over, and it's done. God is wanting us to make space to receive some gifts from him, those invitations that Advent can bring. I think one of the most appropriate words for Christmas in this season is anticipation. 
It's because there's so many people and so many things we anticipate during the hustle and bustle of school. I'm anticipating my son coming home from college this next weekend and, and having family more around. And a lot of us have those kinds of anticipations. We love the fact that we get to give gifts to the people we love and see their faces light up with big smiles. And at the core of anticipation, though, is this word waiting. It's a major theme of Advent, is waiting. Why would waiting be a theme when Jesus has already come? He's already been born. Well, we, again, we remember the waiting that went on for the first time for him to come, but we also remember the waiting that we're in right now, waiting for his second return when he makes all things right. And we wait because all things are not as they should be right now. And we know that. We still have messy relationships, a challenging life situations, health issues, natural disasters, and we could make the list go on and on right now. See, embedded into our Christmas carols are songs that emphasize waiting. We experienced that in the last song we sang, just O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I don't know if you notice, if you're musical, you probably notice this, many of our music Christmas songs are purposefully written in the minor chord like that song was to help us connect with that angst and that longing and that waiting. But as we end up getting closer to Christmas, the songs we tend to sing more and more are celebrating the birth of Christ, and they end up in a major chord like Joy to the World, which have a more of a hopeful and a festive feel. Waiting is a major theme. Do you like waiting? Anybody here like waiting? I don't. Who wants to wait in traffic or for an appointment or in a line at the grocery store? Does anybody remember this sound you're about to hear? There. Who knows what that is? Yeah? For those of you that are too young, that was how you got on the internet in the 1990s. You remember that 1,200 baud modem, and then, wow, you were so excited to pay the big money to get that 2,400 baud. And when the 3,200 baud came out, man, this is lightning fast. What speed do we get frustrated at nowadays? Probably 100 times faster or more than back then, right? 100 times faster is too, too slow today. We're now so accustomed to things being fast, technology has made us more impatient. I think it destroys the health that comes through healthy waiting sometimes. Waiting is important. It's a central part of the development of our lives, spiritually, morally, emotionally. It's an important part of our character development. There are some things that we only learn in waiting that we learn in no other way, like when you tell a child what the difference is between no and not yet. They're quite different, but they feel the same to the child, don't they? Our inability to wait is the cause of many of our problems in life. Our inability to delay gratification is the cause of a whole lot of debt. We buy on credit instead of waiting and saving. Waiting on God can also be challenging. Have you ever been in a hurry when God wasn't? Isn't that frustrating? You can rush your kids, but you can't rush God. Some of you are waiting on God to open a job opportunity, to answer a prayer, to give you direction, 
to remove pain or heal a relationship. Some of you are wanting, a mar- wanting to be married and some of you are wanting a baby. And you're like, I don't get this. I've prayed and nothing's happening. You wonder, why is this taking so long, God? Are you listening to me? Have you forgotten me? Do you even care? Have I disappointed you so much that you're not going to do anything for me? When waiting goes on for a long time, you may even start to wonder if God is even there at all. I remember hearing God clearly a number of years ago about something that was going to happen, and and God said to me, it's going to happen soon. And it did happen three years later. That is not my definition of soon. Is it yours? My definition of soon is tomorrow, next month, maybe. There's another thing I remember sensing God say to me that took 13 years to happen. Waiting is hard. What is waiting on God like for you? How do you experience it? Today we're going to look at a little bit of the Bible and, uh, and how God sent the Savior and, and how they waited so long, almost from the very beginning, in fact, the garden, in the Garden of Eden. God created man and woman, but man and woman decided that they were not going to do what God said and they decided to do the one thing he said not to do and rebelled. And in the midst of their sin, God brought hope. He laid out a plan. It's actually here that God gave the first prophecy about the sending of Jesus. He said to the serpent, Satan, he said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God would one day send his Savior Jesus through the seed, through Eve's lineage. One who would be born, who would crush the serpent, bringing victory over death and sin. God promises to send a Savior for the entire world, and then nothing for centuries and centuries. Until we see Isaiah prophesy, already centuries later, God says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And at the time of this prophecy, it's still 700 more years before Jesus is born. 700 more years of waiting, where all they hear is wait. Wait. And wait some more. Why? What is God waiting for? You may be thinking that same thing today about things in your own lives. What is God waiting for? Why doesn't he just heal this relationship? Give me what I'm praying for. If he can do it, why make us wait? It's important to bring those feelings and those thoughts to God. What we know from all the examples in the Bible of waiting is just because you don't see anything happening, it doesn't mean that God is absent or God is not working. That's because there's something about timing with God that is really, really, he's just really good at it. Look at what Paul says. He says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Remember the seed of the woman in Genesis we talked about? Born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This word set time means at the perfect moment, at the perfect time, God sent his son Jesus to purchase us 
out of our sin to redeem us with forgiveness and grace. Now, another way you can interpret that word is also in more of the picture sense that, that when the time was fully pregnant, it could be translated. In other words, when somebody's ready to give birth, you can't force it to happen before it's ready. And when it's time, you can't necessarily stop it. Did anybody see the news this morning? There was a news article this morning about a guy and his wife in Cincinnati. He, uh, she was pregnant, went into, went into labor this last weekend, and uh, they were driving to the hospital, and it became very apparent they were not going to make it in time, that the baby was going to come. And so he's looking at his wife going, well, what do I do? Do you want me to stop and get off the side of the road and help you? She says, don't you dare stop this car. You drive as fast as you can to get to the hospital. So he drove, and he caught the baby with one hand. Pretty impressive. That guy deserves a medal. And from this seed of a woman would come the Savior who would crush the serpent. The Bible does not talk about a woman having seed. It talks about men having that. This is the only time you see the seed of a woman mentioned in the Bible. Why? Because Jesus was born of a virgin. He was not born of uh, the seed of a sinful earthly man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is divine. That's how he could be the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of our world. At the perfect time, Jesus is born. If you've ever needed encouragement in God's timing, hindsight helps us see how perfectly God does it. For example, here are just a few of the things that made the timing of Jesus' birth so perfect. The spread of the gospel couldn't have happened at a better time, since during the time of Jesus, much of the world shared a common knowledge of the language of Greek, which had spread because who? Alexander the Great conquered most of the world 300 years earlier. Alexander's empire and the succeeding ones led to Greek culture and Greek language being spread throughout the world. Most people in Jesus' day spoke common Greek. The Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek around 280 B.C. in the version called the Septuagint. That meant all of the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah were translated into Greek and an awareness of Jewish scriptures rapidly spread far and wide. In fact, many Jews had forgotten Hebrew since they had been exiled to places like Babylon and elsewhere. And Greek was easier to read than Hebrew, which I can attest to. I've studied both, and don't ask me to remember any of it, but Hebrew was a whole lot harder. Another way the timing was perfect is a new way of learning emerged called the Socratic method, where instead of teaching the one-way communication, people were encouraged to ask questions. And they learned by asking instead of just hearing. So in 63 B.C., the Romans conquered the Greeks, bringing as well a really unusual, unprecedented long season of peace by comparison to other times. Because the Romans weren't having to fight wars, they developed roads and highways, making transportation systems like never before, facilitating the spread of ideas, including Christianity. There was also something that happened during that time period called the Diaspora, a term which is used to talk about how the Jews had dispersed all over the Roman Empire and beyond. The result was there were Jewish synagogues established in essentially every major city in the known world and many of the minor cities. 
So when you read Acts and Paul, you know the gospel spread through the synagogues everywhere as the first point they went in almost every city because that was where the base of spiritual awareness was and that was where most God-fearers were hanging out and people who were seeking God. Scholars point out that there are more than 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Prophecies about his birth, where he, where he would be born, his parents, who, who they would be and where they would be from and where he would grow up and John the Baptist coming and prophecies about his triumphal entry and the betrayal and trial and crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, so many other details. These prophecies are specific enough that it's mathematically impossible that all of them could have been uh, fulfilled by one person. In fact, you could take even about one-fourth of them. It's mathematically impossible that one-fourth of them could be fulfilled by one person. One prophecy and specifically fulfilled, is specifically fulfilled simply because the Romans were in power during the time of Jesus. Historians will tell you the Romans were the only ones who used crucifixion as a way to torture and maintain order. The prophecies about Jesus' crucifixion would not have been fulfilled under another empire. He would have been killed a different way. Yet the Old Testament foretells this hanging on a tree under God's curse. And Paul clarifies it saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And there's so many more things that point to seeing everything adding up. And you see the why behind the wait for Jesus coming the first time. Those who lived before Jesus were born were asking the same questions we ask today so often. Where are you, God? What are you doing? Why are you so silent? How long must I wait for you to save me as the Messiah? Hindsight can be so wonderful, isn't it? In that in-between time between Isaiah and Jesus, those hundreds of years, it was the first time everyone could read the Old Testament in a language they understood. The good news of the Savior could travel through a common language across clear transportation systems through Jews who were spread all throughout the Roman world and beyond and were now encouraged to ask questions to who God, about who God was and the answer is Jesus. When it looked like God was not doing anything, he was working behind the scenes in incredibly powerful, far-reaching ways. And the truth is the same for us today. He is working in your life and our world today. The prophet Isaiah, who saw the baby Savior coming, knew something about waiting. And he said, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. When you wait on God, he moves on your behalf. God has not forgotten you. Maybe you need to hear that again. God has not forgotten you. So if you were waiting, you were not alone. Remember Noah waiting 120 years as he builds an ark? Talk about waiting period, right? Everyone's mocking him like, what's an ark? Well, it's a boat. Well, why are you building it? Because it's going to rain. If you remember, the Bible says it hadn't rained up to that point. So they're asking, what's rain? And then he says, it's going to flood. And they go, what's a flood? 120 years of waiting. Abraham and Sarah walked 
waited 25 years to hold their baby Isaac. Joseph had a dream as a child that he would be a leader and influence lots of people, and instead he ends up being a slave and in prison for 13 years for a crime he didn't commit. Moses waits 40 years in the wilderness to know and discover fully his purpose in life and what he's to do. Hannah waited years to have the baby she was praying for. While you're waiting, God is still working. The Bible reinforces this saying, and so after waiting eagerly, Abraham received what was promised. The process of waiting is rarely enjoyable, right? And it won't be enjoyable unless we shift our view of it. Waiting is uncomfortable, uncertain, frustrating. It feels like too much inaction, too passive. Can't we just do something, God? And yet waiting is essential to our faith. It's a time of preparation, of drawing us and others to God. So let's not waste the waiting times of our lives. There's something about waiting that is built into creation. Ecclesiastes says it this way, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. I mean, we know naturally that if you plant a seed in the ground today, you're not going to harvest it tomorrow, right? It's going to be another season. You have to wait. It takes time. God often has to prepare us for the next season he's bringing to our lives. The Apostle Paul speaks to waiting, saying that we, about what we really need and want to happen when it hasn't happened. Paul, in talking about this in Romans 8, he's just talked about how all the creation has been waiting. And he uses this phrase or a metaphor for waiting that I think is really powerful. He says it this way. He says, all of creation is groaning as in birth pains. Now, the message paraphrase captures what he says next in Romans 8, and I think it says it in really powerful, simpler language, drawing on this metaphor. So it says this. It says, that is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We, enlo- we are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the, longer, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside, helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer even out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. How do you think about waiting personally? When we think about waiting and being pregnant, we call it what? We call it we're expecting, right? We're expecting a baby. This is what it's like to wait on God and to wait with God. Obviously, I've never experienced being pregnant. I've seen it up close and personal three beautiful times. But it's a kind of waiting that you don't often see the evidence of for some time. You can't see everything that's going on inside. 
You just trust that something really good is happening and that baby is growing. It's a powerful image to remind ourselves that God is at work even when it doesn't seem like very much is going on. Trust that God is at work. It just takes time. Why so long? I don't know. I mean, Moses... The Israelites were in the promise, trying to get to the promised land. It took 40 years. It should have taken a few weeks to get there, but it took 40 years. What was, it, what was he waiting for? What was the waiting all about? I mean, it becomes clear in Scripture that God wanted to lead them through the experience of the wilderness that, so that it would expose and heal and strengthen their heart. Because if their heart wasn't in the right place, they wouldn't be able to handle the promises God was going to give them. When the Israelites missed it, they got to go around again, but the promise was still there. The work was still going on. See, sometimes waiting is for us a wilderness experience. It feels dry, feels hopeless, feels dead. There's no way to skip the wilderness. You have to go through it. But it's not for punishment. It's not for punishment. It's for a purpose. How can you be leaning into God and his goodness through the often frustrating season of waiting? How can your posture toward waiting change? Because maybe another person is not ready yet and you're waiting for them. Or maybe God is doing something in you and you're not ready. Or maybe the circumstances that are beyond you are not ready. There are two different ways of waiting. We can wait with open hands, or we can wait with closed fists. I think sometimes we're not always aware of the posture that we're holding with God or towards waiting in life. I know I'm not. Waiting starts with clarifying what you are waiting for. What do you really want or need? Sometimes I think we wait for things from God without really checking in with him about those desires and really paying attention to them. And honestly, sometimes I think it's easy for us to not identify the desires driving us because if we avoid them, then we don't have to be disappointed by the fact that they're not there yet. It's just easier sometimes to not look at them. If you were asked, what are you waiting for? and you said, I'm disappointed and frustrated and weary because it just hasn't happened, the next healthy question that we need to process is this. Have you sat with God in those feelings and thoughts? Waiting is God inviting you to intentionally bring your questions, your feelings, your thoughts, your desires to Him. See, I think we often keep our anger and our disappointment outside of our relationship with God rather than bringing them to God, to sit with them with God, letting him hold and speak into those feelings and thoughts. Avoiding them doesn't make them go away. We have to learn how to hold our anxiety, our fears, our desires before him. We need to learn how to live with the ambiguity and not just try to escape from uncertainty that comes with waiting and the uncertainty of our future. Often God may not give you the word or the answer you are looking for, but he wants you to learn that waiting is not something you have to do on your own. God wants to be with you 
in the waiting. Have you ever noticed how Jesus often asked people about their desires? To the man who had been crippled for 38 years, Jesus says, do you want to get well? To the disciples, when they first started following Jesus, they say, he said, what do you want? To the two blind men crying for mercy, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? See, let's take these desires back to the image of the open hand and the closed fist. An open hand looks like, here, God, here's my desires. I desire healing or I desire a child or financial provision, a healthy relationship, whatever it is. I, I'm believing you for good things. I give my desire to you. Here it is. But see, then when we have to wait, it often becomes really easy to turn those desires into demands that we hold with a fist. I want to have this desire met in this way by this time. We may not even know all the time that we've closed our hand. And when we've closed our fists, we can't receive easily from God. We live frustrated that God and others are not meeting our expectations, our hope of what we wanted to happen. So what do you do when your expectations are not met in the way you were waiting for? It's important to see how some of these expectations need to be adjusted. We get that, right? I think we all realize that. When I realize I have a clenched fist, it's helpful for me to simply ask and say, why am I so attached why do I need to have it done this way at this time? And to have a good conversation with God about that. The invitation of waiting is about how to hold our desire before God. Believing that God is so very good as you keep an open hand to receive his timing and plan and whatever his answer looks like. So to help bring this point home today... How do you normally wait? <laughs> Let's just think about the last few days here. How, how have you waited in the last few days? Maybe you had an appointment and you had to wait and you got kind of irritated. Maybe you got stuck in a line at the grocery store or while driving. How patiently did you wait? Or did you lose your patience thinking your time is being taken away? They're wasting my life. In your everyday life, do you keep an open hand to see what you could receive in the invitation to wait? Or did you clench your fist demanding and bawling somebody out saying, you should not make me wait this long? Did you, or maybe did you distract yourself by scrolling through your phone and you miss the invitation that God may have had for you in that moment? Because how we do things in the natural often mirrors how we do them spiritually with God. Do you sense God maybe inviting you to wait a little differently than you are today? Waiting doesn't have to be a bad thing. I don't know a whole lot about bamboo, but I think it speaks to us about how we wait. Some bamboo takes five to seven years before you see growth. You keep watering it the first year, second year, third year, nothing happens. You fertilize it years four, five, and six, and still nothing. But then year seven, it sprouts and then just takes off. 
And some bamboo grows 35 inches a day. That's an inch and a half an hour. I want to see that someday. The point being, you may be in year six of your bamboo waiting season, and you give up, and you bail, leading you to miss out on the incredible results that God is wanting to bring of good in your life. Hang in there. Hang in there. The main point I think God is inviting us to is switching our mindset from waiting for God to waiting with God. From waiting for God to waiting with God. Because I think that makes all the difference in the world. See, there may be some things God is doing in our hearts, helping us to see how we may need to change. But I think most of all, we're to remember that the secret is willing, is us being willing to believe God is with us, even in the waiting. To believe that a seed has been planted and we wait with him to see what the next season will bring. So here's something you can do with this this week. And we're going to take some time to practice this just for a few moments now. So I'm going, to, I'm going to lead you through a couple things, give you a couple moments of silence to think about it and this imply about it. And one of the reasons we have Advent candles is to emphasize the truth that Advent begins in darkness. There is no light without our Savior. And each week, darkness gradually dissipates as we light another candle, reminding us God is continually bringing more light into our world. We light a candle as a symbol of God's Spirit being present with us. And as we sit in God's presence, I want to ask yourself, because God is here, so just expect Him to speak to you right now, what is something you are currently waiting for? Uh, if you need to close your eyes, feel free. If you want to keep them open, whatever, just concentrate on that question. What are you waiting for now in life? And now as maybe one or maybe a dozen for some of you ideas come to mind, what emotions surround this time of waiting for you. Just try to get in touch with those emotions and feel them for a moment. And then if you're comfortable with this, just Maybe open your hands and just say, God, I want to wait with you. And just invite the Holy Spirit into this moment with you. I think God wants to come to you, some of you right now, and he wants to show you how he's with you. You've been waiting for him, and he wants to show you how he's with you. Jesus, some of us don't really understand why this season of waiting has been so long and difficult. Lord, I ask that you would draw us closer to you, 
more than we've ever been before. Would you help us more fully trust in your character, your goodness, your loving acceptance of us? We give you our hands. Help us to hold life with open hands before you, with an anticipation, with an expectancy, even when we can't see anything, that you, Lord, are at work. You are actively doing something on our behalf, something new that you're bringing. We trust you. For those times when we want to clench our fists and get frustrated, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn to just turn around and take a breath and open our hands and receive more of your love and your presence with us. We can discover you in each and every moment of every day. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.